Let's pray together and ask for His help as we open His Word together this morning. Father, how thankful we are that You have sent Your only begotten Son into the world. And thank You, Lord Jesus, that You humbled Yourself in a way that we cannot fully comprehend. You, the perfect Son of God, came and took upon You, as we sang earlier, our vesture, our humanity. You became what You previously were not in order that we might be rescued and reconciled and restored to what sin had destroyed. Oh, how, how we thank you for your great humility, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for the good news of this gospel that God became man. We renounce every effort of human strength and wisdom and ingenuity that tries to figure out a way for man to become God. And yet, as we renounce all of that, we humbly embrace this good news that God became man in order that we might be delivered from our sin and brought into your household where we enjoy the privileges and blessings and rights of your very children. Thank you for this. We ask that as we explore the Christmas story today and even over the next several weeks, that you would give us fresh insights, life-giving insights, because we are not merely recounting a, a story from of old. We are recounting the very words of truth, and this word is given that we might have life through it, that we might be transformed and changed by it. So we pray, Spirit of God, that you would attend the preaching and teaching of your word both this day and the days that are to come in order that we might be changed into the image of Jesus Christ, made conformable to all that he is until Christ is perfectly formed in us. We give comfort to those who feel a great weight of sorrow or grief or fear or distress. Give encouragement to those who are just weary and, and worn out through this season. And we pray for those who seek eternal life and seek spiritual significance and meaning, that they would find it in you, the great God. Oh, how we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior, your only begotten Son. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew 1, Matthew 1, and as you can see from the title slide, this sermon this morning is titled, A Genealogy of Grace. Now, I'll confess that the genealogies are not typically my favorite portions of Scripture to read, and I can't even say that I've committed one of them to memory. Many passages that we would gladly memorize and commit to memory and take deep into our souls, but not the genealogies. There's a children's song that comes to my mind right now that a very skilled uh, musician put together that recounts the genealogy of Christ. And I remember hearing that years ago and thinking, you know, that's catchy enough that if I worked at it, I might actually be able to memorize one of these genealogies. But this genealogy in front of us today is very significant. 
our world recognizes the significance of our ancestry. And this is a, a company that is probably making money hand over fist right now. Some of you, any of you joined this? Bought a subscription, paid your fee, had the test done? A few hands are going up now. Do you know that you are part of more than 3 million paying subscribers who, across its core ancestry websites, uh, are now part of an extensive collection of over 20 billion records? Ancestry has more than 15 million people in the Ancestry DNA network. That's an impressive thing. But listen to the words of, of their chief scientific officer, uh, Kathy Ball. She says, Ancestry is honored to play a role in empowering the journeys of personal discovery for 15 million people around the world. And here it is. The size of this community is a true sign of how deeply important it is for people to connect and learn about their past. As the network continues to grow, we can deliver even more value to our members, including more granular insights about heritage and provide compelling new paths to learn about ourselves using genetics. And I, I got to tell you, this is a fascinating thing to me. Now, I'm not willing to submit my DNA yet because I, I don't trust them what they're going to do with that. And I, Somehow, I feel like that may come back to bite me one day. It's not because I have anything in my past that I'm afraid they'll discover. Well, some of you right now are thinking, what is that guy trying to cover up? <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm going to hang on to as much of my personal information as I can for as long as I can, even though I know they can get it whenever they want, right? But I am intrigued by this thought that we as a people recognize the deep importance of our past, I think even that would be a thumbprint, if you will, of our Creator, marking our souls in a way because He Himself believes that our past matters. Where you come from makes a difference as to where you are. You know, there are two different genealogies given with reference to Christ. The first here in Matthew 1 before us, and we'll actually look through this in more in depth. And then the second one is in Luke chapter 3. It follows the, the traditional Luke 2 nativity story of the birth of Christ. Matthew's genealogy returns only about 2,000 years from the time of Christ's birth to the time of Abraham. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew seems very intent on explaining to his audience that Jesus Christ is not only the promised descendant of Abraham, but he is also the promised heir of David's throne. And so in Matthew 1 verse 1, we read these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is royalty. He is the one in whom not just Jewish blood, but David's blood is flowing. He's the rightful heir of the throne. That makes him king of the kingdom. But in seeking to establish the origin of Jesus Christ, Matthew also intentionally leaves out several names if you were to compare this genealogy with the full genealogies from the Old Testament. And that causes us to believe that under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew's intent was not so much about a full chronology of how Jesus came uh, to be descended from all of those who preceded him, but it is more, he is more interested in establishing the credentials of Christ as Abraham's son 
and David's son. Sometimes people get hung up on this and think, well, did, is this an inconsistency between the Old Testament genealogies and, and the New Testament record? Let me illustrate it this way. If I say something like this, you know, Abraham Lincoln is my cousin. And some of you actually sat up at that point and looked at me like, really? Yes, he is. He is a cousin. And I could, I could show you the family tree and show you certain forks, and if we trace those back to a, a particular trunk, as it were, you would say, oh, you, you are, in fact, cousins. But I can make that statement without laying it all out and fully explaining it, because when I say he's my cousin, obviously we've lived in two totally different time periods, and I don't mean simply that he and I share a set of sibling parents, as it were. We're not first cousins, but we are related. And, and my point in stating that would not, to be full, would not be to fully explain how we are cousins, but just to establish the fact. And I think there's something in Matthew's genealogy of of similarity here, where he is not apparently including all of those details that could be included. But the genealogy of Matthew does more than simply establish the origins of Jesus Christ. It, it shows us uh, very clearly that he is the fulfillment of God's promises to two key figures from Jewish history, the first being Abraham and the second being David. And even to tie this into Matt's recent equip class series where he showed us the promises of God and, and all of which ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus. There were two really big promises made, one to Abraham many thousands of years ago, and in Genesis 17, 7, God said to him, in your offspring will all the families of the earth be blessed. There's a global blessing promised through Abraham to the world. And the second covenant that is in view here in Matthew's genealogy is the promise that God made to King David, saying, in your offspring, I will establish your throne forever. And so it creates this expectation. But there's a, there's a second purpose here that I want to draw your attention to today. And that is that the genealogy of Jesus Christ shows that he is not just the friend of sinners, but he is actually the gracious Savior who creates his own family, as it were, and does it in such a way where sin and shame that has worked its destruction in the lives of husbands and wives and in-laws and siblings through multiple generations is actually reversed, and where there has been darkness and, and dimness and destruction and frustration and bitterness and all kinds of things, Jesus creates blessing. You say, all of that in a genealogy? Well, it's not explicitly stated, but if you take time to think through the stories that are loaded into these names included in the genealogy, you can't come to any other conclusion. In one sense, you could take a look at this genealogy in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17, and say, that is a dysfunctional family, and you would be right. By typical human standards, there's not a saint among them. But the gospel is not the story of God searching for really good people to include in his family. He's not looking for those who've performed perfectly or kept his law, but it's of God rescuing sinners and redeeming them by the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, and ultimately transforming them and their stories by his grace so that they are viewed eternally as holy ones. And the family tree of Jesus Christ is a beautifully woven tapestry of grace. 
And it's grace that cleanses the deepest stains of sin and overcomes the generational dysfunction of people, yes, like Abraham and Judah, of David and Solomon. And one of the purposes of this genealogy is to demonstrate what it means that Jesus Christ is God's Messiah for the world. Not just Jewish people. Not even just committed religious Jewish people. And this genealogy actually lays some groundwork for understanding what what Jesus himself means when he says in Matthew 9.13 and then Luke 5.32 records the same statement. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So I want us to look into this genealogy today with a view of finding ourselves and seeing hope for our hearts because we, we sometimes look over our biological ancestry and say, oh, I come from a line of really crummy people. Or maybe it's a line of really great people, but you're the one who kind of messed it all up. And maybe even you are aware of it this week as you gather with some of those family members, like you're the black sheep of the family, and there's good reason to be thought of as the black sheep. Is there any hope for us? I say there is, and we could take each individual in this genealogy and trace out their life story and find that they're all in need of grace. But I actually want to do something today to lay a little groundwork for the next three Sundays as we build up to Christmas. And and in a sense, this is a prologue to a little three-part series that's coming uh, that I'd like to, to do called The Women of the Nativity. Now, next week, we're going to be doing a series looking at, obviously, Mary is the central woman related to the nativity, but, you know, there are two other ladies that are really significant that God blessed in an extraordinary way, both of which have a significant story to tell, and the the second lady is Elizabeth, and the third is Anna. But, you know, prior to those really special women, there were others, and four of them are included in this genealogy. We might expect Matthew to include the matriarchs of Israel. Do you know who I mean by that? I simply refer to Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. But Matthew includes four others. The first is Tamar. And she appears in a a less than glorious fashion. The second is Rahab. The third is Ruth. And the fourth, if you can see the screen closely enough, is Bathsheba. I say all four of these are surprising inclusions because three are clearly women of less than stellar reputation. And the fourth comes from a background that, certainly from the Jewish perspective, would be less than desirable. But I love the fact that God includes them in this genealogy. Because it's a reminder to all of us that we are in need of grace personally. And it's a reminder and powerful statement that there is, in fact, reason for sinful people to be hopeful. Jesus Christ is looking to rescue and redeem sinful people. But even more than that, he's looking to make them his own family. I love the words of the pastor and commentator John MacArthur who writes... It is a beautiful testimony to God's grace and to the ministry of His Son, Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, who did not come to call the righteous but sinners. If He has called sinners by grace to be His forefathers, should we be surprised when He calls them by grace to be His descendants? 
So in many ways, the genealogy of Christ is a family tree, just like yours and mine. It's been devastated by the sin and failure of everyone in it, yet it is full of promise for those who look to Jesus as their Savior and Redeemer. So let's go first of all to Tamar. Tamar appears in in Matthew's genealogy, but to really understand the background, you need to go all the way back to Genesis 38. And you can go there with me, but I'm just going to summarize some things very briefly in the course of this message today. And when you think of Tamar and you begin to think of her story, there might be several words that would immediately come to mind. And I've included words like these, spiritual dysfunction and family betrayal. Just to summarize her story, she was actually brought into the household of Judah. Now, Judah, you'll recall, was one of the sons of Jacob. He is the one, ultimately, through whom God intended to bring Messiah into the world. Judah was a scoundrel. It was Judah and his brothers who schemed the selling of Joseph into slavery in Egypt. It was Judah and his brothers who deceived Jacob and made him think that a wild animal had had killed that beloved son, It was Judah who plunged his father and the household into disarray and grief of an extraordinary kind. Judah at one point took a Canaanite wife named Shua. It's an act of rebellion and faithlessness. They have three sons together. The first son, Ur, their firstborn, is the one who initially marries Tamar. The scriptures do not go into great detail, but Genesis 38 records simply that Ur was wicked in the sight of God, and God put him to death. And so according to cultural tradition, Tamar was then offered to the second son. And he uh, was, uh, again, under their cultural rules, he was obligated to raise up an heir for his brother through Tamar, and Onan refused to do that. Again, the scripture doesn't tell us how long this took place, but Onan was a a man who also acted wickedly, and God put him to death. There's a third son who is available, but he's younger, and so Judah makes a promise and says, Tamar, be patient in time. When he's old enough, I'll, I'll, I'll make good on this obligation to raise up an heir so you will not be uh, childless. There are all kinds of things attached to this. Uh, Her future financial well-being rests on Judah being faithful to his word. And even this third son and her brother-in-law, if you will, being faithful to the the traditions and, and even the teachings of that particular day. But what happens is that Uh, The third son is not given to Tamar, and so she takes matters into her own hands, and it's an ugly scene in so many ways, but it really is tied to family betrayal and spiritual dysfunction. One commentator writes, the complications were caused by the failure and the refusal of the men in this family to live obediently to God's laws and to fulfill their responsibilities. Tamar is in very real danger of being destitute because Judah and these men will not live honorably. And so now she deceives Judah, who himself is a deceiver. She pretends to be a prostitute, and she seduces him and incestuously conceives not just the son he owes her, but twins. 
And while Tamar's actions in Genesis 38 do not stand in accord with our Christian ethics and understanding, another commentator writes, in her culture at that time, her actions were within the law. She had the right to have a child by the nearest of kin to her deceased husband. Another author writes, what God seems to take most seriously in this story is not a violation of sexual convention, but damage to the community, which includes a poor, diminished female. When Judah finds out that Tamar is expecting, he calls for her death, and then she produces those items that he had previously possessed and given to the prostitute, which was her and essentially holds him accountable saying, you want to put me to death? You're the father. And Judah sees his error and actually says in Genesis 38, she is more righteous than I. Again, it's just, it's almost impossible for us to fully grasp how anything in the story could be categorized as righteous. But here is a woman in a really horrific position And now, in grace, God begins to intervene and turn this story. And when you come to the end of chapter 38, and you see uh, Tamar in the throes of, of this delivery, it is the midwife who is there to assist, who sees... The, the second son, because twins are in her womb, and the one who should have been born first is not, and the son Perez uh, breaks out, and the midwife says, what a breach you have made for yourself. So they named that son Perez, because he is the one who breaks through. That would be a transliteration of his name, or a translation. He is a living metaphor of his mother, the one who struggled and, by God's grace, was able to break through. But you step back from the ugliness and darkness of this moment and you see God at work for he would not allow Judah to bring the the promised seed into the world in rebellion through a Canaanite wife, but actually has continued that messianic line through Tamar. And so while her sin would be categorized as sexual immorality, her salvation ultimately will come through the Son because Perez is in the line of Christ. What a remarkable thing to think that out of that great darkness would come light of salvation. And I'm astonished as I pause at this particular point in Tamar's story and even think that one of the most precious and glorious titles of Jesus Christ is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Some of you struggle to think that Jesus Christ might have any inclination to draw near to you, to be your friend, to be a family member, to welcome you into his household. Do you think if he would not hesitate to identify with family ancestry like this in his past, that he would hesitate to identify with sinful people like you and me now? Tamar will be saved through the great son that would descend from Perez. I know that last carol was unfamiliar to many of you, but it is worthy of learning. And I love the lines that we sang, He who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh, 
conquered death's sting, shattered the darkness, and lifted, and we might insert Tamar's name there and say lifted Tamar's shame. Holy is his name. The second woman mentioned in this particular genealogy is Rahab. She is the woman who is rescued from sexual exploitation and redeemed from immorality. Let's summarize her story very quickly. She's a Canaanite, a citizen of Jericho. It's the gateway city into the promised land, and it is first on the military conquest plan of Joshua as he leads the children of Israel out of Israel and into this land that God has held for them for 40 years. Rahab is part of a culture that God describes with the word abominable. You can look at Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 14 specifically, and you'll find things like child sacrifice, divination, fortune-telling, sorcery, mediums, and necromancy. Along with these particular abominable practices, God describes a variety of sexual perversions and distortions that he also categorizes as abominations. And these are the kinds of things that Rahab's culture promoted and practiced without any hesitation of conscience. The Canaanites had a long history of wickedness and evil. And in Genesis 15, 16, God indicates that he had been patient through many generations and would continue to be so. And for hundreds of years, he had let them go their way, giving them an opportunity to repent of their sin and to acknowledge before him that they were in need of rescue. But so great was their evil that God speaks of the final judgment that Israel is about to bring upon them and many other nations as the land vomiting out its inhabitants. It conveys the idea that this is a deeply sinful culture and Rahab is part of it. And while we are sympathetic with a woman whose path of life has carried her into the depths and darkness of of prostitution and sexual exploitation. It is nonetheless her sin. The details are not given, but she is a woman of means. We know that because she owns a home on the eastern side of the city, part of the massive wall of protection that Jericho has built. She and her family may have also been involved in the manufacture of linen, for the Bible mentions flax drying on a rooftop, and that would have been used to produce cloth. While we don't know many details, Rahab is also a woman who sets her faith in God. And somewhere along the way, the testimony of God's mighty works had had not only stirred fear in the hearts of the citizens of Jericho, but for Rahab, they began to work something deeper into her soul where her simple testimony of faith recorded in Joshua 2 verses 11 through 13 is this. She speaks to the spies who have come and she says to them, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And Hebrews 11 tells us that it was by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish along with those who were disobedient because she had welcomed the spies in peace. James tells us in chapter 2 verse 25 that in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. 
And the point is this, genuine faith always demonstrates itself by our works, and so they did for Rahab. She came to a place of saying, if I am not rescued and delivered by the God of Israel, I will be lost, and I and my family will perish. But God in His kindness does, in fact, deliver Rahab. And Joshua 6 records the destruction of Jericho, but the rescue and salvation of Rahab and her household. And when you come to Matthew 1, you read in the genealogy in verse 5 that Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. It, it is It is fascinating and stunning to me that such a noble, God-fearing son like Boaz, who we'll talk about in just a moment, would be born to a woman whose past was so deeply stained, whose life was so dark and sinful that she is commonly known as Rahab the harlot. Yet when we as the people of God think of Rahab, we don't put her into a category of, of wicked people that we want nothing to do with. We love her by faith, embrace that story because we see so much of ourselves in her. People who need to be rescued from our own sin. People who need to know that there is a Savior like Jesus Christ and her Savior will be born through her own son, Boaz. Again, we're brought to the point that Jesus Christ is not repulsed by the deeply stained past of people like Rahab, but rather loves to rescue and redeem us from our sin and position us for blessing and position us in order to be a blessing. And so we could sing for Rahab, he who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh, conquered death's sting, shattered the darkness, and lifted Rahab's shame. Holy is his name. Well, right on the heels of Rahab, we read of Ruth. And let's summarize her story very quickly. She is rescued from generational paganism and redeemed from a beggar's plight. She's a Moabite. That is, her background would be similar to Rahab's. The Moabites were the descendants, though, of Lot and his oldest daughter. And that's another story of sad dishonor and and grim, incestuous sin. The Moabites had refused to give the Israelites passes through their land on the Exodus journey. And the Old Testament records for us that King Balak of Moab waged war against Israel, hired a prophet named Balaam to put a curse on Israel. Remember, every time Balaam tried, all he could do was utter blessing over the people of God. And it's actually kind of a a comical story, but it will give you some sense of, of how opposed the Moabites were to the Israelites. And during the times of the judges, Moab Uh, lived under the rule of King Eglon, and he was a a great oppressor of Israel. Now, as a Moabite, Ruth had no share in the promises that God had made to Abraham. Humanly speaking, she was a stranger to those covenants of promise. She was a stranger to the blessings that God had reserved for Israel, and and realistically should should have fallen under the condemnation and judgment of God as part of that pagan culture. 
But when you go back to Ruth and you begin to read through the story, the first five verses tell us some things that are really specific about her. And while there is no specific sin that is connected to Ruth, there is a deep suffering that I think all of us connect to, humanly speaking. Let me read the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and that's speaking of Israel. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So Naomi is really the focus of the story. A Jewish woman originally living in Bethlehem, which ironically, you know, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. But it's not a place of bread because famine comes to the land. And so, so her husband says, we got to move. We got to go find food. And, and even there, you can see a, a kind of, of case building against this man, a, a faithless man, who rather than remain in the land of promise and pursue God, he abandons that for what he can see, and he moves his family into an enemy nation, if you will. And for Naomi to be widowed in these conditions and, and then to lose her two adult sons would be like a sentence of poverty coming down from Almighty God upon her. And Naomi's testimony in Ruth 1, verses 20 and 21, is this. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Do you see how she's looking at her circumstances saying, I am under the judgment of God? But here's God graciously at work, taking a situation that is as bad as it could be, and He is about to do something that to this day would be recognized in, in many ways as one of the greatest love stories of all time. But even more than a great love story, it is a marvelous demonstration of the powerful grace of God to reach into the depths of our darkness, of our faithlessness, and to bring life and light. And Ruth is part of this. At this particular point, Naomi gives her and Orpah the opportunity to return to their, their homeland, to their families, give them a fresh start, and they probably knew lots of people, and, and the quality of woman that Ruth is, I can't imagine that she would have uh, had no opportunities. But there's something else that God wants to do, and that brings us to that aspect of her salvation. She sticks with her mother-in-law, and they return to Bethlehem. And if you've never read the book of Ruth, you have to do it, because there's so many moments that, from the human perspective, just look like coincidence, but clearly God's behind it all. They return to Bethlehem at the time of barley harvest, which tells us a couple of things, doesn't it? The famine has been broken. But a, har a season of harvest is also a time that even the poor in those communities could go into the corners of the field and, and glean the leftover grain that had not been harvested. So there's going to be an opportunity to eat, to gain some kind of provision. 
So here in the town of Bethlehem, where the Christ child will one day be born, this barley harvest is underway. Famine has been broken, but more than the blight of widowhood and the financial, social jeopardy, financial and social jeopardy these two women were facing at that particular moment is this grace of God that's about to be outpoured in a most surprising way. Naomi sends Ruth out to the, to the field to gather the leftover grain. And as God has uh, had provided through the law of Moses for the impoverished peoples, he provides something that neither one of them could have dreamed. Because guess whose field she happens to glean in? Well, it's a man named Boaz. And he happens to be the closest near relative to Naomi. And because Ruth has married into this family. There are prospects here that nobody could have even begun to imagine. So, so don't think of Naomi as a manipulative mother-in-law. She's not. I'm sure that Boaz had a very tender place in his heart for non-Israelites. I'm sure that many times he had listened to his mother, Rahab, recount what it was like to grow up in Jericho, to live her life in such spiritual darkness, but then to be brought into the blessing of God's family. Those are questions and pieces of the story we'll just have to wait for Boaz and Rahab to tell us when one day we gather in the presence of God and we're all recounting those stories of great grace. But to cut to the chase, Boaz sees Ruth, he blesses her, there's additional interest, he fulfills the cultural obligation and, and redeems uh, Ruth through this, through, through this marriage ceremony and brings her into his household. Naomi's fortunes are reversed in this great moment of God's grace. And then Boaz and Ruth conceive a child and she gives birth to Obed and Obed is the father of Jesse. And that starts to sound familiar. And then we say, Jesse is the father of David. And we say, wow, David is descended from Rahab and Ruth. Who would have dreamed a God of grace has plans and dreams like these? And Jesus Christ is not repelled by the checkered past of his family members, but delights to rescue and redeem even the outliers. And Ruth's Savior will be born through her son. Well, that brings us finally to Bathsheba, the woman who is rescued from shame and redeemed from adultery. Most of you probably know her story well, but as I prepared for this message, there were a few details that made it even more poignant to me that she ended up where she was. Do you know that she is the daughter of Eliam, as 2 Samuel 11.3 tells us, and you may say, I'm not familiar with Eliam. Well, he was the son of Ahithophel. And if you've studied the life of David, you would know Ahithophel was one of the great advisors to King David, a trusted, close, and intimate associate. It's likely that Bathsheba grew up around David, probably significantly younger than he, but a father of position and a grandfather of a really significant position in that inner sanctum of David's. 
Her husband, Uriah, the Hittite, as he is called, is counted among David's top military heroes. He's one of a small circle of valiant warriors that are listed in 2 Samuel 23, verse 39. Whether she grew up watching David from close proximity or not, the scriptures do not tell us, but she knew the great stories of the battles won, enemies vanquished, David's rescue of his wives and children at Ziklag, his sorrow and mourning over Saul and Jonathan, the kindness that he showed to Mephibosheth, the stunning death of Uzzah as David sought to bring the ark to Jerusalem, and a hundred other victories and stories and military conquests. That was her world. But the king, the sweet psalmist as we sometimes refer to him, seduced her, and together they conceived a child in that moment of sin. That's a great mark upon her life. It's a difficult word even for us to think on, but it is something that produced great suffering for her. And I want you to think about the suffering that followed. First of all, there was the loss of fellowship with God Himself. The Bible doesn't describe with any kind of detail the the conviction that she must have felt in her heart, although we'll get to something that I think may give a few little indicators of a, a little path or course of her heart Uh, in the ensuing days, but the loss of fellowship with God would have been the greatest loss she suffered. But then secondly, there's the loss of her husband, Uriah. There was the loss of that son that she and David conceived. His name is Shemaiah. There was also deep shame. There was the shame of her unfaithfulness. There was the shame of her husband's murder and the men who fought alongside him. Because if you read that story, it wasn't just Uriah who was stuck out there all by himself, but was positioned with other men. And and we don't have an exact number, but as a direct result of her sin with David, her husband dies and other men die unnecessarily. Think of the widows and the children who lost a father that day because of one moment. There's the shame she brought to her father, Eliam, and her grandfather, Ahithophel. And this may have been the very point where Ahithophel's loyalty to David died, and it set that household up for great conflict going forward. There is profound loss, and there is deep shame, for in time her sin will be known nationally. There's a third component here that I just want to touch on, and I leave for your own meditation, but I would actually categorize it as a woman who suffered the abuse of a king's privilege. It's a different era. We, most of us, have been born and grown up in a country where we have elected representatives. We don't understand the concept of even a benevolent dictatorship. But in that day, what the king says happens. And if he calls you to his chambers, you go. We don't know the details, but as I meditate upon this and I compare it even with Genesis 1 and 2 and what God established from the beginning where he said, I am created this first man and this first woman to enter a holy union, a covenant relationship for a lifetime. But up to this point, do you know what number Bathsheba is? Eight. It's an abuse of privilege. 
And even after this moment, though it, it does seem that David had a special affection for Bathsheba, for they will actually have four children together, but the Old Testament records that David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. I asked Kristen a couple days ago, how would that make you feel? No woman finds that noble, and rightly so. We read the story of David and Bathsheba in a matter of minutes, but there was a lifetime of difficult consequences for her to live through. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. For she too, like the other three women, experienced eternal salvation, and that salvation will ultimately come through the fourth son that she and David conceived. The son you know best. We know by the name Solomon. Now let me back up a little bit. Shemaiah, the son who died, means fame. We don't really know all that went into choosing that name. In their case, it certainly was an infamous moment. The second son, Shobab, that was born to them. And you can go to 2 Chronicles 3, verse 5, to find these four sons listed. Shobab is a name that means backsliding. Again, while there's no history that is spelled out for us, but I think given this particular name, its meaning in the timeline, it would fit into a season of sorrow and grief. We know that David finally repented in Psalm uh, 51 is, is the record of his repentance, and it's a beautiful psalm. Psalm number three is called Nathan. It stands to reason, I think, that this son is so named in honor of the prophet who confronted David for his sin and was God's instrument of reconciliation for David and probably, I believe, Bathsheba. But you know, Nathan also means giver. And perhaps it is a bit of a testimony to the forgiveness and mercy that God gave to them, a testimony to his kindness. But the fourth son is the son of promise. And he is the one through whom Messiah will be born. 2 Samuel 12, verses 24 and 25 record that David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. But then Samuel goes on to record the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah. Here's the second name because of the Lord. And the name Jedidiah means Beloved of the Lord. So Solomon is the name given to David by the word of the Lord. First Chronicles 22 records that conversation that, that God had with David and said, I'm giving you a son. He's going to do great things. His name shall be Solomon. David clearly followed the, the commandment of God and gave the name Solomon. But it's my opinion that Jedidiah was the name given more for the benefit of Bathsheba. I, I'm not going to die on that hill, but as I read the story and just think through all that was unfolding, it certainly was a name that would be a testimony to her that despite her sin, she, like her fourth son, is in fact beloved of the Lord and is a prominent figure in the genealogy of the Christ. And again, we could sing if we were altering the words for Bathsheba's benefit. He who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh, conquered death's sting, shattered the darkness, and lifted Bathsheba's shame. Holy is his name. And what a thought that out of the shame and difficult consequences of such grievous sin... God would bring blessing. The genealogy reminds us that each of these women 
was in need of the one who was coming. It's Jesus. But it's not just the four women who need Jesus, is it? It's the whole family. Sinful, dysfunctional, broken as they are. And, and, and you know what? Here's the real message of the genealogy. It's not just that crew that needs Jesus. So do we. I told you about Abraham Lincoln being a cousin, but you know, he's not even a close cousin where I can say I'm directly descended from him or have some kind of right that, or you know, inheritance that goes along with it. It's just like you know, the, the, the branches of the family tree kind of come back to a, a similar place at some point. I have an uncle who's done a lot of genealogical work, and he's traced one branch of the family all the way back to the 1630s in Virginia. Do you know who was populating Virginia in those days? England got the bright idea that if they emptied out some of their prison houses, life would be better there, and so they sent a whole bunch of them over to Virginia. Now, we have no evidence to say we're descended from prisoners, but you know, it's either that or some really impressive people, and you know, no in our crew, it's probably not that. I don't know who's back there, and part of me is like, I don't want to find out. <laughs> but you know, if God reveals to you your sin and shows you that you're part of a long family line of sinners, he's actually doing you a favor because Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And it's not actually that there are two categories of people, righteous ones, that, that God says, oh, they don't need saving. Jesus, you don't need to worry about them. No, he's actually talking about people who think themselves to be righteous, who would look at Jesus and say, oh, that's sweet, but no, thank you. Who would look at their life choices, decisions they've made, things they've thought, words they've spoken, and say, it's not that bad. I, I'm, I, I'm not a sinner. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a sinner. That's how the righteous that Matthew 9 speaks of think of themselves. But the reality is we're all sinners. Everyone, going back to Adam. Everyone in need of that cross. Again, I read MacArthur's words. It's a beautiful testimony to God's grace and to the ministry of his son, Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners who did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If he has called sinners by grace to be his forefathers, should we be surprised when he calls them by grace to be his descendants? You know, you and I can't go back and insert ourselves into the Matthew 1 genealogy, but by faith we can insert ourselves into the family that has continued since then. Has there ever been a time that you've said, I am a sinner? I'm not just as bad as some of those characters that you read in, in Matthew's genealogy. I'm worse. Has there ever been a time that you have humbly acknowledged that before God? Because I think this genealogy does several things for us. And first of all, one of the things that it does is to produce humility. We live in a culture that is, is desperate to find somebody else 
who's a worse character so that if we can kind of stand over them in self-righteousness or even distance ourselves from them and say, well, I'm not as bad as, then it makes us feel better. But that's a temporary form of salvation. You're still going to stand before God one day and give account for your sin. And a real look at the genealogy begins to produce humility in us because if we're honest, we say, I'm descended from the same sinful stuff. Do you own your sin? Do you own it before God? There's a second thing that this genealogy does. It creates not only humility with respect to our sin, it creates humility with with respect to the sins of others. We were just there a couple of weeks ago, weren't we, taking a look at what biblical forgiveness is. And when you've experienced the forgiveness of your sins, then you are quick to forgive others because you say, I'm like that servant who was forgiven the billion-dollar debt, and yeah, you've racked up a big debt against me, but it still is nothing in comparison to what I did to God that put Jesus on the cross. So it's humility with respect toward God as we've offended him, and it's humility with respect toward the sin of others. But there's a second thing it does, and that is it gives us real hope. God's not looking for the best of humanity to bring into his family. He's actually looking for the worst. So there's hope for you and me. And if there's a place for these people then there's a place for me. And that moves me to the third thing. It ought to produce gratitude that any of us should be included in the family of God is is the most amazing privilege. But here's his history. This is the family Jesus chose to be born into. how grateful we can be that there is a Savior who rescues us from our sin and positions us for blessing despite all of the sin and suffering and evil and wickedness and unrighteousness. And that moves me to the fourth thought. It ought to produce service. When you've been shown this kind of grace by God and you've received absolute forgiveness and that's not on the basis of the works that you've done, and then you've been given a position as a family, and again, that's not on the basis of works that you've done, and, and when you've been positioned by him to be secured so that you know even when the moment of your death comes, it's not gonna have the final say-so, I mean, don't you wanna serve that God? And you can serve him in a thousand ways. We did it earlier just by opening our mouths singing, and some of you say, well, not a gifted musician. You know, God's not looking for perfect notes. He's looking for a heart that just says, oh, thank you. You're gonna have an opportunity to go out of this place and demonstrate love to somebody in a tangible way, somebody who needs a word of encouragement, somebody who needs a hug, somebody who needs an extra 10 bucks because times are hard, and you say, well, I don't even have an extra 10 bucks. That's all right. You've been shown so much grace from God. Give yourself away in the week. Again, we're not giving ourselves away because we're trying to make God happy with us and say, God, can I have a place in your house? If I, if I serve enough, will you make room? And we're saying, I've made room. So go serve, go love, go bless. Humility, hope, gratitude, service. I'll bet if we, if we began to open this thing up and you were just thinking through the story and the realities of this genealogy of God's grace, you could add to this list. And in no time, this group could probably come up with about 80, 90, 100 
ideas, blessings, points of application that this genealogy of grace produces. Oh, this Christmas story is so much more than mangers and angels and wise men. And God help us if we reduce it to snowmen and sleigh bells. It is the work of the eternal God rescuing really crummy people. Let's pray together. God and Father, thank you for what you've done. There are some here who genuinely fear to look back into their ancestry, but through the lens of the gospel, their vision is carried beyond their own sin or the sins of of parents or siblings or in-laws, carried to the Christ who chose a corrupted, broken family, made it his own, and even through all of that, would lay down his life to rescue and deliver his ancestors and those who have come after. Thank you for Jesus. Would you give each of us grace at this moment to own our sin, to humbly acknowledge before you that we are as broken and evil and marginalized and exploited and exploiting others as these we've looked at, all of us in need of a Savior. And out of that humble acknowledgement, would you grow humility toward others that quickly forgives and restores and seeks reconciliation and says, oh, we have so much to be thankful for. We are forgiven. Give hope to those who, who right now feel like they've done such bad things, there's no way God in heaven could love them. Let them believe the Christmas gospel. And I ask God that out of that humility and hope, gratitude will be born and service that is marked by generosity and sacrifice and joy, just a thousand things. And until that great day that we are assembled, people from every tribe and tongue and family and nation, assembled in your presence, delivered finally from this corrupt and broken world, when we can recount the specifics, we, we praise you that the stories have been written and are being written. Father, would you seal to our hearts your word of truth, and if there has been anything of human opinion that actually would cloud our understanding or inhibit our obedience and faith, then just let it die right now, but let your word do its powerful work and we praise you that the word of God stands forever. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this genealogy. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.